Chapter 11. I made the transition from the sweltering streets of New York to the coolness of the Pennsylvania hills in one swift turnpike jump. I should have enjoyed the contrast, but every mile along the way I was thinking about buckboard and stagecoach, Nikki and Israel, Maria and Jojo and Angelo, boys and girls whose lives had become so strangely entwined in my own. It was the same thing back in Phillipsburg. I sat in the shade of our backyard, sipping the orange egg Gwyn had made for me, watching my baby son in his basket under the trees, and I caught my mind slipping back to kids in New York, fighting for the right to sit in one sweaty corner of a public park. Your parish is Phillipsburg, Gwyn reminded me gently one night when I'd worried aloud for half an hour about Angelo Morales, who had made his mind up to be a preacher but had no money for school. You mustn't neglect your own church. Gwyn was right, of course. And for the next six months, I poured everything I had into my mountain parish. It was satisfying work, and I loved it, but the other place was never very far from my thoughts. I've noticed, one of my parishioners told me, you never get quite as excited about things here as you do about those kids in the city. I swallowed. I hadn't thought about it. But, show it or not, I was getting trickles in an idea that alarmed me. That I take my family and move to New York as a full-time servant to these boys. Maybe I could never get their, their house but I could work with them on the street. The idea was persistent with me. I wondered, I pondered it through as I drove over the countryside that fall and winter on pastoral visits. I preached sermons on knowing God's will, hoping to learn something about how to get guidance. But most of all, I thought about it on a certain hilltop. Ever since I was a boy, I'd taken my deepest perplexities to the hills. One in particular heard my complaints as a child, Old Baldy, an obby little mountain near our home in Bondsboro, Pennsylvania. From Old Baldy, I could look down on our house and watch Mother and Dad and the other children running around the neighborhood trying to find me. Sometimes I would stay up there for the better part of a day, thinking through the problems a boy has to conquer. When I got back, I always got a licking, but Dad's switch never kept me from making my journey again. Because up there, I found an aloofness and a detachment that I needed. And I needed it badly now, too. Not far from our church, there was an abandoned strip mine. I chose this spot for my adult version of Old Baldy. I could see the church from his, this hill, and if I parked my car in a certain spot, Gwen could see it and not worry about me when I was gone for a long time. Up there on my hill, I considered the matter. Was it possible, I wondered, that this urging to go to New York came from God? Was I truly supposed to abandon this parish and move Gwen and our three small children into the dirty city with all its problems for daily living? A definite and clear answer did not come right away. Like most guidance, it came to me one step at a time. The first step was a return visit to New York. Do you realize that a year has passed since I was thrown out of the farmer trial? I asked Gwen one February morning. Uh-oh, said Gwen. What do you mean by that? You're getting ready to go back to New York, aren't you? I laughed. Well, I'd been thinking of a very brief visit, just overnight. Mm-hmm. It felt good to drive over the George Washington Bridge again and later over the, to Brooklyn Bridge. It was good to walk through the streets again, jumping over piles of snow as I had done when I first came to the city. I was surprised at how much at home I felt. I wanted to look up old friends. I wanted to revisit sites where miracles had happened in the hearts of boys. One of these sites was the Fort Greene Projects. I was walking down the street, reliving the scene Jimmy Stahl and I had enacted there when suddenly I heard my name called. Davy! Preacher! I turned and saw two fine-looking African-American soldiers approaching me at a run. They were wearing a neat, freshly pressed uniform, and their shoes shone till it hurt the eye. I stared at them. Buckboard! Stagecoach! I hardly recognized them. They must have put on 20 pounds each. Yes, sir, they said together, coming to a snappy attention. Look good, eh, Davy? Getting into the army is a kind of ultimate for many boys from the housing projects. 
The literacy, literacy and health requirements are stiff enough so that it is considered a certificate of worth to be able to wear a uniform. Buckboard, Stagecoach, and I had a great reunion. They told me they were doing real well. They told me they quit the gang after our street meeting and never went back. In fact, preach, said Stagecoach, the chaplain gang broke up for the rest of the summer. Nobody felt like fighting. I left Buckboard and Stagecoach with real regret. I was surprised at the strength of my own reactions to this unexpected meeting. I had liked these boys and missed them more than I had known, but the great surprise was ahead for me. I set out down Edward Street past the lamppost where Jimmy and I had preached looking for Israel and Nicky. I saw a young Spanish lad I thought I recognized and asked him if he knew the whereabouts of Nicky and Israel of the Mau Mau's. The boy looked at me oddly. You mean those jitterbuggers who turned saints? He meant it as a joke, but my heart leapt. Glory to God, I thought. They're holding on. But the next piece of news left me reeling. Not only were they holding on, but Nicky, at any rate, was going places. Nicky, huh? said the boy with a disdainful snort. He's crazy. He's going to be one of those nutty preachers. I stood on the street corner with my mouth hanging open. Did I hear you right? Nicky wants to become a preacher? That's what he says. Where could I find him? I wanted to know. When had he talked about preaching? Who had he talked to? Had he taken any first steps? The boy couldn't answer me, so I took off and looked for Nicky myself. I found him a little later, sitting on some apartment house steps and talking to another boy. Nicky, I said. Nicky turned around, and I stared into a face I didn't know, where the hard defensive exterior had been. There was openness and animation, a charm in an eager boy's face. Now his eyes lit up with real joy. Preacher! He hopped up and ran toward me. Davy! He turned to the boy who was with him. Look, man, this is the preacher I told you about. This is the one who bugged me. It was wonderful to see him. After introductions and polite talk, I asked Nicky if it was true that he wanted to go into the ministry. Nicky looked down at the sidewalk. I never wanted anything so bad, Davy, he said. This is just terrific news, I said. Tell me, have you done anything about it yet? I don't know how to start. I was overflowing with ideas. I offered a right to some theological schools. I wanted to sponsor him myself. I wanted him to go to a voice clinic for his impeded speech. I even had some thoughts about raising the necessary money for all this. I had been invited to speak to a church group in Elmira, New York, a few weeks from then, on the problems of young people in the cities. It struck me as ironic that in that same city, Louis Alvarez had been imprisoned. The boys don't stay long in Elmira. Louis would be transferred by now. I had no idea where he was. Nikki, I said, will you come with me to Elmira? Will you tell your story to the people there? It could be that they'll be able to help you. I no sooner made the suggestion than I began to have qualms about it. Nikki's story, as it had come to me in bits and pieces, was an exceedingly ugly one, full of a brutality and a strange irrationality that might be well nigh incomprehensible in Elmira, New York. I was accustomed by now to chilling sights and sounds on New York streets, and even I found his story shocking. Still, I argued with myself the Elmira Church had expressed a desire to learn about the gangs. Here, indeed, would be a speedy introduction. For me, it would mean a chance to hear Nikki's story from start to finish, as I had not yet done. And best of all, a chance to see the St. Nick experience from the other side. So that was how Nikki came to be standing on a platform in Elmira, New York, a few weeks later to relate the story of his life. I'd spent some time on his introduction, stressing the poverty and loneliness that spawned boys like this so that the audience would not judge him too harshly before they heard him through. My precautions were unnecessary. From the moment he began to speak, that room full of people was with him. His own words, the pathetic narrowness of his experience, for all he was so knowing, 
the flat staccato recital by a boy who had not learned to exaggerate or embellish, told more than volumes of sociology about the world he came from. I I was mostly in the streets, he began, because my parents had customers coming where we lived. They would come at night or in the day, and then all of us kids had to go out. They were spiritualists, my parents. They advertised in the Spanish papers that they would talk with the dead and cure sickness. They would also give advice about money and family problems. There was only one room at home, so us kids were in the street. At first, the other kids beat me up, and I was afraid all the time. Then I learned how to fight. They were scared of me, and they left me alone. After a while, I got so I liked it better in the street than I did at home. At home, I was the youngest one. I was nothing. But in the street, they know who I was. My family moved a lot, and mostly it was on account of me. If there was any trouble, the police would come around asking questions, and then the superintendent, wherever we lived, would go to my parents and say we had to move. They didn't want their building to have trouble with the police. It was that way if the police just asked a Puerto Rican boy a question. It didn't matter if he did anything. The minute the police came around asking about him, he and his family had to get out. I didn't know why I acted like I did. There was a thing inside me that scared me. It worried me all the time. But I couldn't stop it. It was this feeling I got if I saw a cripple. It was a feeling like I wanted to kill him. It was that way with blind people too, or real little kids, anyone, weak or hurt. I would hate them. One day I told my dad about this thing. We never talked or anything, but this thing scared me. So I told him and he said I had a devil. He tried to call the devil out of me, but it wouldn't come. The crazy thing in me got worse and worse. If someone had crutches, I would kick them. Or if an old man had a beard, I would try to pull it out. And I would rough up little kids. And all the while, I would be scared and wanting to cry. But the thing inside me was laughing and laughing. The other thing was blood. The minute I saw blood, I would begin to laugh. And I couldn't stop it. When we moved into the Fort Greene projects, I went in with the Mau Maus. They wanted me to be president. But in a rumble, the president has to direct traffic, give orders. And I wanted to fight. So they made me vice president. I was also sergeant at arms. That meant I was in charge of the arsenal. We had garrison belts and bayonets and switchblades and zip guns. I like to go in and just look at those things. You steal a car aerial to make the zip guns. You use a door latch for the trip hammer and they shoot 22 shells. But for rumbling, I liked a baseball bat. I'd cut a hole in the garbage can to see out of. Then I'd put it over my head and swing the bat. The Mau Maus would never fight alongside me because when I got crazy like that, I would beat on anybody. I also learned how to stick with a knife, which is when you cut someone but don't kill him. I stuck 16 people, and I was in jail 12 times. Some of those times, my picture was in the paper. When I walked down the street, everyone knew me, and the mothers would call their little kids. The gangs knew me, too. One day, when I was waiting for a subway, five five guys came up behind me. They got a leather belt around my neck and kept twisting it. I didn't die, but I used to wish I had, because after that, I could never talk right. There was a funny noise in my throat. I had this hate of people who had anything wrong with them. And now it was me. I had to bop all the time after that to keep respect. Our gang controlled the turf as far as Coney Island and Ralph Avenue. We had red jackets with M.M. on them. And we wore continental heels, which are good in a fight. One day we were in a candy store on Flatbush Avenue. There were six of us drinking soda when seven bishops walked in. The bishop gang was at war with the Mau Maus. One of the bishops went up to the candy counter like he owned it. My boys were watching me. I walked over and I shoved him. He shoved back and then everyone was fighting. The owner's wife started screaming. All the other customers ran out on the sidewalk. There was a butcher knife on the counter. One of my boys picked it up and cut a bishop five times through the scalp. I saw the blood and I started to laugh. I knew he was dead and I was scared, but I couldn't stop laughing. The owner's wife was telephoning the police. Another one of my boys picked up that butcher knife and hit her right in the stomach. Then we ran. 
I never touched the knife, so I didn't go to jail, but my parents had to go to court, and I guess it was the first time they looked at me. They got scared when they saw what I was. They decided to get out of New York and go back to Puerto Rico. My brother and I went to the airport to say goodbye to them. On the way back from the airport, in his car, he gave me a thirty-two pistol. He said, You're on your own, Nick. First thing I had to do was find a place to sleep. I held up a guy with the gun and got $10. I rented a room on Myrtle Avenue. I was 16 then. That's how I lived after that, holding up guys for money or something to hawk. During the day, it was all right. I was with the gang. Whatever the president and and I told them to do, they would do. But at night, when I had to go into that room, it was terrible. I would think about the two dead people in the candy store. I would bang my head on the floor to stop thinking about them. I started waking up in the middle of the night, crying for my mother. We never talked or anything before she left, but suddenly I felt like she should come and take care of me. I turned 18 in July 1958. That month, the dragons from the Red Hook Projects killed one of our boys. We were going down in the subway to get one of them. That's gang law. If one Mau Mau dies, one dragon dies. We were walking down Edwards Street on our way to the subway station when we saw a police car stopped. And a whole bunch of chaplains hanging around. The chaplains are the African-American gang in Fort Greene. We had a treaty with them that we wouldn't fight, and we would work together if another gang invaded us. It looked like action, so we went over. The chaplains were all standing around two guys I have never seen. One had a bugle, and the other was a real skinny guy. Then somebody brought an American flag, and the police car drove away. All it was, the two guys wanted to hold a street meeting. As soon as the flag came, the skinny guy got up on a chair, opened up a book, and this is what he read out of it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish. Now, the preacher said, I'm going to talk to you about whosoever. Whosoever means African Americans and Puerto Ricans, and especially it means gang members. Do you know that when they crucified Jesus, they crucified gang members too, one on each side of him? I'd had enough, I said. Come on, you guys, we got business. Not one of them moved. It was the first time they didn't follow me. Then I got scared, and I called that preacher every filthy name I knew. He paid no attention, just kept on talking a long time. And the next thing you knew, the president of the chaplains flopped down on his knees right on Edward Street and started crying. The vice president and two warlords got down beside him, and they cried. One thing I couldn't stand was crying. I was glad when the chaplains left. I figured we would go, too. But then this preacher comes up to Israel. He was president of the Mau Mau's and starts shaking his hand. I figured he was trying to bust us up, and I went up and shoved the preacher. Israel stared at me like he'd never seen me before. So that preacher heads for me. Nikki, he says, I love you. No one in my life ever told me that. I didn't know what to do. You come near me, preacher, I said. I'll kill you. And I meant it. Well, Israel and the preacher talked some more, but at last he left, and I thought it was over. Only we never went after the dragons. But later, this preacher came back, and he talked about this big meeting for gangs they were going to have up in Manhattan, and how we should come. We'd like to come, preach, says Israel. But how are we going to get through Chinktown? I'll send a bus for you, says the preacher. So then Israel said, we'll come. Well, I said, not me. I felt like I'd rather die than go to that meeting. But when the gang went, it turned out I was with them. I was scared not to be with the gang. I figured I would fix his little prayer meeting for him. When we got there, here were three rows of seats right down front roped off for us. That surprised me some. The preacher said he'd save seats, but I never figured he'd do it. 
A lady was playing the organ and I got the guys stamping and shouting for action. Then a little girl came out on the stage and began to sing. I whistled at her and everybody laughed. It was all going my way and I was feeling good. Finally, the preacher came out and he said, Before the message tonight, we're going to take up a collection. Well, I figured I saw his angle. I'd been wondering all along what was in this for him. Now I saw he was a money grabber like everyone else. We're going to ask the gang members themselves to take it up, he says. They'll bring the money round behind this curtain and go up onto the stage. I figured he didn't have any good sense. Anyone could see there was a back door there. May I have six volunteers, he says. Man, I was on my feet in a second. I pointed out five of my boys and we piled down there quick. Here was my chance to make him look silly. He gave us cardboard cartons. I wanted to get started right away, but he made us stand there a while. He reeled off a long blessing. I tried not to laugh. Well, we worked that whole arena. If I didn't like what someone put in, I just stood there till he gave some more. They all knew Nicky. Then we met down behind the curtain. There was the door. It was wide open. I could see street lights, and I heard a water truck spraying the street. Back in the arena, some of them were laughing. They knew what we were pulling. My boys were watching me, waiting for the word to cut out. And I just stood there. I didn't know what it was. I had a funny feeling. Suddenly, I knew what it was. That preacher trusted me. That never happened in my, in my whole life before. And I just stood there, my boys watching me. Inside, I could hear they were giving him a hard time. They were shouting and stamping, and he was having to stand there and face them, trusting me. All right, you guys, I said, we're going up on that stage. They looked at me like I wasn't right in my head, but they never argued. I was that kind of guy that the kids didn't argue with. We went up the stairs, and you never heard a place get quiet so fast. We gave him the cartons. Here's your money, preacher, I said. He just took the money, not surprised or anything. Like he knew. All the time, I'd bring it. Well, I went back to my seat, and I was thinking harder than ever than I'd thought before. He started talking, and it was all about the Holy Spirit. The preacher said the Holy Spirit could get inside people and make them clean. He said it didn't matter what they'd done. The Holy Spirit could make them start new, like babies. Suddenly, I wanted that so bad I couldn't stand it. It was as if I was seeing myself for the first time. All the filth and the hate and the foulness like pictures in front of my eyes. You can be different, he said. Your life can be changed. I wanted that. I needed that. But I knew it couldn't happen to me. The preacher told us to come forward if we wanted to be changed, but I knew it was no use for me. Then Israel told us all to get up. I'm president, he said, and this whole gang is going up there. I was the first one at the rail. I kneeled down and said the first prayer of my life, and this was it. Dear God, I'm the dirtiest sinner in New York. I don't think you want me. If you do want me, You can have me. As bad as I was before, I want to be that good for Jesus. Later, the preacher gave me a Bible. Then I went home wondering if the Holy Ghost was really inside me and how I would know. First thing that happened, when I went in my room and shut the door, I didn't feel scared. I felt like I had company in the room, not God or anyone like that, but the way I'd feel if my mother came back. I had four pot sticks, marijuana cigarettes, in my pocket, I ripped them up and threw them out the window. The next day, everyone was staring because word had gone around that Nikki had religion. But another thing happened that made me know it was real. Little kids would always run when they saw me. But on that day, two little boys stared at me a minute, and then they came right up to me. They wanted me to measure and see which of them was taller. Nothing important. Only I put my arms around them because I knew then I was different. 
even if it didn't show, except to kids. Then, a few weeks later, a dragon came up to me and he said, Is it true you don't carry weapons anymore? I told him it was true, and he pulled a ten-inch knife and went for my chest. I threw my hand up and caught the knife there. I don't know why, but he ran, and I stood there, looking at the blood coming from my hand. I remembered how blood always made me go crazy. But that day it didn't. Words came into my mind that I had read in my Bible. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanseth us from all sin. I ripped my shirt and tied up my hand. And from that day, blood never bothered me. As Nikki talked, a hush fell over the room. The scarcely breathing silence that invariably attends a miracle. For we were witnessing a miracle, or hearing one, that night in Elmira. And as each of the listeners took it in, he caught his breath with a little gasp that sends the knowledge racing through the room. Nikki's voice, the straining, painful, stammering voice in which he had begun his story, had altered as he spoke. Gradually the words came more readily, the sounds clear, until he was speaking as distinctly and effortlessly as anyone in the room. Only now had Nikki realized himself. He stood on the platform trembling, unable to go on, tears streaming down his face. I never knew what had caused his speech problem, whether it was physical injury resulting from the strangling or what doctors term an hysterical affliction. Nikki, of course, never in his wildest fancies considered seeing a doctor about it. I only know that from that night on, his voice was healed. That night, too, a collection was taken in Elmira that started Nikki on a long and remarkable journey.